the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and thanks for joining me as we conclude this July 4th weekend. Summer is the time we really think about climate change. With scorching temperatures in Europe that have reached as high as 115 degrees in France. And tonight, we'll discuss the climate and other related matters with Fred Krupp, the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, who says that in addition to carbon emissions, there is another gas we need to keep an eye on. Oh, methane is the uh, little known um, secret driver of more than a quarter of the climate change we're experiencing every day. A molecule of methane, when it's released into the air, in that first 20 years after release, it's going to be 84 times more potent pound for pound uh, than carbon dioxide. And then I'll be joined by Jessica Sager, the co-founder and CEO of All Our Kin. She describes their mission and goals like this. All Our Kin is really setting out to transform the supply of high-quality, sustainable family child care. This is care that is offered primarily by women in their homes. So it's a home-based child care business that really meets the needs of working families and of our very youngest children. So we've built a model for helping these women develop truly high-quality early learning settings that are also sustainable businesses that help themselves and their families succeed. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, July 7th. There's an unlikely pair of philanthropists behind Washington, D.C.'s newest think tank. It's called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and it's funded by liberal billionaire George Soros and libertarian billionaire Charles Koch. Its mission? To make the case against foreign wars. International humanitarian assistance totaled a record $29 billion in 2018. That's an increase of 30% since 2014. Some of the world's richest people may take their money away from private bankers and wealth managers unless they offer more impact investments and philanthropy deals, according to family offices and foundations. A recent study found that a quarter of adults over 50 take a supplement for brain-related health. But that same study, done by experts convened by AARP, suggests that seniors should spend their money elsewhere. The supplements do not work. And finally, the latest billionaire to promise to leave his fortune to charity? Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcos, who announced that he plans to give away 90% of his $6 billion fortune to charity and added he would also donate to re-elect President Trump. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Fred Krupp of the Environmental Defense Fund right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Their work has transformed how half a million people with disabilities access information, made it easier and safer for human rights defenders to document violations, and equipped environmental conservationists to protect ecosystems. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Can you help me remember how to smile? Guided by science and economics, the Environmental Defense Fund, commonly referred to as EDF, tackles urgent threats with practical solutions, which has included being one of the first environmental groups to engage corporations in a constructive way. And in the world of today, where the median time a person spends with an organization is less than five years, EDF has been led by the same individual for 35 years. He is Fred Krupp, the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Good evening, Fred, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. It's delightful to be here. Share with us the mission of the organization and some of its history. 
Well, uh, EDF's roots go back to Long Island in the 1960s when a scientist was documenting the decline of the osprey. He found uh, back then that 100 nests, which should give rise to uh, 180 chicks every year, Mm -hmm. gave rise to just seven viable chicks. The eggshells had thinned so much because uh, DDT's breakdown product, DDE, was in them that the amniotic fluid just evaporated out of the eggshells. Moms went to sit on their eggs, and they just crashed. Crack. Wow. Cracked. And so um, so uh, getting DDT banned first in Suffolk County, Long Island, and then in the United States of America was our founding achievement. Um, a scientist paired with a lawyer. And thanks to that, uh, the osprey, which was uh, decimated back then, is now uh, thriving. So is the bald eagle, the brown pelican. Uh, all the birds of prey that were decimated are uh, now back and going strong. That's a great story. And you're a membership organization, correct? Yes, we have uh, three million members, including a million in our affiliate, the Moms Queen Air Force. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them uh, take action for us when uh, there's a moment where their voice can be helpful and over 350,000 donate to us every year as well. Very impressive. You know, for a lot of listeners, environmental groups kind of get lumped together. So I wanted to ask you, Fred, what do you consider to be your unique value proposition that differentiates EDF from all those other organizations? Well, there's a lot of great environmental organizations in our country and indeed around the world, and thank God for that. Um, Nothing uh, particularly makes uh, no one characteristics makes us unique, but I think the combination of the fact that we're guided by science scientists and um, stay true to the science, uh, we're very um, also economically uh, literate. We want to shape markets to reward cleaning up instead of rewarding pollution. We're very big on innovation. We're always looking for new ways to break the mold and do something better, faster, cheaper. Uh, we're completely bipartisan in this country, um, you know, as hard as that is in 2019. Uh, but we're committed to um, that. It's a very solution-oriented culture. Now, a lot of environmental groups share many of those characteristics. Perhaps the way we put them together is a unique. Uh, differentiating proposition. Yeah, it's the stack. It's the stack, yes. (laughs) Um, Boy, there are so many environmental issues at the moment, and uh, they're all so significant, or sometimes they seem that way. How do you prioritize where to put your time, your focus, and resources, and what to shelve for another day? Well, there's basically two things. One, how important is the problem? And two, um, how tractable is it? Can we actually solve it? Sometimes people will offer us money to work on something where we don't think our organization is best able to do that, and and uh, we'll refer them to another organization that's better able to do it. So it's both the problems that are important and where what we can bring to the table gives us confidence that we can sp- spend the money well and um, get something accomplished. Yeah, so you don't chase the money. You basically have your mission, you stick to it, and want to make sure that things that you're going to be doing is going to be consistent with that. Yes. However, donors have a big role. Uh, We have some great ideas that get funded and we're able to execute against them, and we have other great ideas that we're working hard to get funded. Yeah. You know, there was a time in your history, Fred, when EDF seemed to be in the court almost every day, and that lessened for a while. But now you seem to be back there more than you've been, and that's a result of the current administration. What are some of the more important issues that you're currently engaged with in terms of policy? Well, Denver, our founding motto, maybe unofficially, was sue the bastards. I recall. (laughs) Uh, And uh, now it's uh, finding the ways that work. So certainly initially uh, there were a whole lot of lawsuits. Um, Then we were joined uh, by um, a fellow named Tom Graff who founded Mm -hmm. our Uh, San Francisco office and who went to the London School of Economics. And uh, he initiated a culture at EDF before I arrived, but he taught me and mentored me when I arrived in the the power of understanding, taking the problems apart and really understanding the economic drivers, being able to see the world um, through uh, the companies that in some cases were causing the damage. But what made them tick? Why were they doing that? so um, that became a dominant part of EDF. But we always retained a bunch of really good lawyers, and thank God we did. Um, 
Vicki Patton, our general counsel, is just a champion litigator, and uh, we, we now have a larger team than we've ever had in our history uh, because the Trump administration really deserves to be sued over and over again. Uh, last week on the clean power plan, um, the Obama administration had created a plan to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide emissions from power plant. The Trump administration has issued its own plan, uh, which would basically uh, not reduce greenhouse gases at all. Um, and uh, we're preparing to go to court about the incredible thing that the administration is even eviscerating the uh, clean car rules. Right. Um, which Car companies don't even want that to happen. Most car companies don't. Uh, Fiat Chrysler, unfortunately, does. But um, the others... You know, don't, and it's a very, uh, it's very nonsensical, and uh, dry, will drive up uh, consumer cost and and demand for oil, and certainly will add a, add a lot of pollution to the air. If if uh, the Trump administration succeeds, we're determined not to let them. Yeah, you've held the line on a lot of these things, haven't you? We have, uh, and you know, um, I think that's been important. Uh, but elections matter, and um, you know it. It really matters uh, who gets elected uh, in in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two because the candidates we've seen have had very different positions on environmental issues. For sure. When speaking about the environmental movement, I have always found that perspective and context can be quite helpful. So, Fred, walk us through the four phases of environmentalism as you see them. Sure. Well, the first wave uh, or phase of uh, environmentalism really was the conservation movement, Teddy Roosevelt setting aside lands, yeah. uh, great national parks that so wonderful a legacy to have left. And that, of course, is, continues to this day as we continue to set aside new things. Uh, the, the second wave, um, really marked by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, the DDT battle, mm -hmm. um, the idea that we need strong rules, we need to prohibit and ban things, we need strong legal contours around behavior. Uh, so that was uh, the 1960s, and um, that wave also is still relevant today. We still do need to you know, ban toxic substances and some other things and, and limit uh, behavior in some ways. The third wave uh, I wrote about in 1986 um, in the Wall Street Journal, and it's really using the power of business and the power of markets to drive solutions. So this can happen in the policy framework or by working directly with a business. Uh, a policy example would be acid rain, where in the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, we set up a system, the government set up a system, but that rewarded companies the more they reduced pollution. If they reduced pollution by more than 50% that was required, they could actually sell that extra um, pollution to another company that uh, wasn't in a position to do that. Um, but it's also in the private sector when we partner with Walmart and they have mandated that their suppliers eliminate eight toxic chemicals from household products, detergents, um, cleaning fluids, um, that's also a way to uh, deploy the power of the market, in that case a big buyer, yeah. to clean things up. And then most recently I, I uh, observed a, a fourth wave, and I again wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and that is uh, that innovation, technology right now, can actually be wind at our backs, which is so refreshing because so often uh, those of us who care deeply about uh, people's health, the natural world, the environment. We've had wind at our faces. Mm -hmm. um, it's an uphill struggle. But new technologies, um, whether it's solar or wind power, coming radically down in price by 80 and 90 percent, or the ability to monitor pollution, making the invisible visible, mm -hmm. these are technologies that um, drive uh, cleanup. And we need to, in the environmental community, uh, the general public uh, governments need to harness those technologies um, and make them uh, work to accelerate um, environmental progress. Yeah. Picking up on that third wave, that's something that EDF helped 
usher in, which is a bit ironic for an organization that had that informal tagline of Sue the Bastards. Uh, you began with McDonald's, and you've done more work with FedEx and, and, uh, and, and Walmart. How did you gain their trust, particularly with the history of the organization, and what do you think the real key is in engaging corporate partners in a constructive way? Well, I think uh, it started with uh, McDonald's, as as you said, Denver, where, uh, you know, we un- we committed to them that we would work to understand their business model, mm. and uh, their business model was fast food. Very early on, we promised we would not ask them to use Wedgwood China to serve their hamburgers <laughs> on. And uh, we worked in their restaurants, unpaid, of course. We didn't accept anything free, and, and we don't. It's one of our rules when we right. work with a company. Uh, we don't let them financially support our work. We raise that money through third parties. Um, and the um, I think that built some trust. And then uh, as other companies thought about uh, would they want to uh, accept EDF would go to a company and say, we'd like to work with you, FedEx, on uh, helping to develop much cleaner trucks. Um, FedEx, before deciding whether to take our take us up on our invitation, would often do reference checks. And uh, so in the beginning, they were asking McDonald's. But I think the fact that we really were there not to play gotcha yeah. and take information and issue a press release about it uh, was good. On the other hand, I have to also say, Denver, that I think um, we're respected because we call them the way we see them. And there's been times when we've felt like we needed to, you know, uh, push one of our corporate partners publicly. And uh, we've done it. And we've um, always told them we're going to call them the way I see them. And I think... uh, Increasingly, as environmental issues become more important, they understand that um, that adds value to the relationship, the fact that we're not like a paid consulting Mm -hmm. firm. We're independent. We're going to praise them when they deserve praise, but we're going to hold them accountable otherwise. Yeah, a healthy balance. Well, in order to raise the bar on sustainability and build on some of the momentum that has been generated in the business community, what would you like to see business leaders do? Well, the most important thing nowadays is for, in addition to business leaders, to cleaning up their own footprint, using less energy, et cetera, they need to look at their footprint from their entire supply chain and in the other direction – what happens when their products are used in terms of energy consumption? Mm-hmm. Are they, is it a very efficient television or an energy hog television? And even what happens to their products uh, at their end of their useful life? Um, the next step today that more <clears throat> companies are helping with is helping to be part of a consensus to get strong environmental rules in place. Mm-hmm. When it's free to uh, throw pollution into the air, climate change gases into the air, uh, greenhouse gases into the air, um, it creates an uneven playing field for the companies that want to clean up. And so uh, more and more companies are are joining with us and others to call on state governments and the federal government, even in the international context, for there to be – a much stronger set of rules uh, that guarantee that all of our children and grandchildren are going to thrive and prosper in this world and not be affected by um, catastrophic climate change. Yeah. And the fourth wave you mentioned was technological innovation, as you said, finally having a wind at your back. And let's take a couple of examples of that, Um, starting with methane. Now, I think the average citizen, when they're talking about global warming, they're almost always discussing carbon emissions and not methane. So how significant an environmental problem is posed by methane gas? Oh, methane is the uh, little-known secret driver of more than a quarter of the climate change we're experiencing every day. A molecule of methane, when it's released into the air, in that first 20 years after release— it's going to be 84 times more potent pound for pound uh, than carbon dioxide. And so um, cleaning up methane actually is one of the fastest things we can do today to lower the temperatures that we're otherwise going to see in the next 20 years. And so this is a big priority for the Environmental Defense Fund and increasingly for the environmental community. We have helped make this issue 
somewhat more visible, although you're right, Denver, most people um, still uh, are learning about it. Yeah. Well, you're also going to energetically address this issue by doing something that is almost incomprehensible for a nonprofit organization, and that is to launch a satellite. Tell us about Methane Sat. Well, increasingly, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully, some of the biggest um, oil companies are making commitments to uh, clean up their methane pollution. We calculate those commitments amount to saying they'll reduce the uh, methane pollution from their operations, uh, many of them by 75 percent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, remember uh, in the arms control arena, President Reagan, Reagan would say, trust but verify. I do remember. And so... Um, We're going to launch a satellite that will uh, have tremendous capability to look down from low-Earth orbit at all of the major oil and gas facilities worldwide, at least uh, those that aren't over the ocean. So about Mm -hmm. 80% of the facilities worldwide multiple times a week and see uh, if the companies are... Uh, meeting their pledges. The ones who haven't pledged will make transparent uh, all of this data. Actually, for all companies, will make it transparent. So um, the public will be informed, governments will be informed, companies will be informed as to how much of this methane pollution is in the sky. It's important not only because this is the easiest, uh, least expensive way to lower temperatures that we'll otherwise see, but also uh, because the International Energy Agency says that 75% of methane emissions from the oil and gas industry um, can be reduced in a very cost-effective way, half of that for free. Yeah. Uh, but we'll also be looking at um, cattle feedlots, mm-hmm. uh, rice paddies, uh, landfills, uh, even the Arctic tundra, which unfortunately is at the thaws. Uh, is expected to release um, potentially vast quantities of methane. And that's why it's so important that everything we can do to reduce temperatures now, we do to avoid um, what are sometimes referred to as positive feedbacks. Yeah, There isn't anything positive about these no, feedbacks. No, not at all. Uh, they would be run- runaway, uh, a runaway situation. We've got to avoid those tipping points. Fred, when do you hope to launch a satellite? It will be uh, either the end of 2021 or the beginning of 2022. We've now raised uh, about $70 million. Uh, we have a few uh, few million more to raise uh, to build the satellite and then a few tens million more to raise to do the public education and advocacy around making sure that the data is turned into action because that's the whole purpose, reducing these emissions. We've set a near-term goal for the world uh, of reducing emissions by 45% by 2025, and uh, we're hoping to set a goal of uh, reducing emissions by the full 75% uh, for not too long thereafter. Give me the benefit of your thinking and that of the organization, because as you know, most nonprofits are pretty timid, do things um, you know incrementally, and this is such a big-time decision for a nonprofit organization to make to launch a $70 million-plus satellite into space. What went on inside the organization that got you to say, yeah, let's move ahead on this? You know, Denver, uh, climate change is a really big problem, and I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about or talking about all the awful parade of horribles that mm-hmm. is coming our way. We're already seeing them, the... Hurricane Harvey, the floods in the Midwest, the mega wildfires that are exacerbated by climate change, and of course we could go on and on. Um, I don't think our donors uh, or any of us who have thought about the problem are satisfied by just making a little dent here and there. Uh, We want solutions that are commensurate with a problem. Uh, The satellite is one of the things EDF is working on in that regard, but not the only. Um, If we're not going to take big steps, uh, we should get out of the way and let somebody else uh, run these organizations. Well, I applaud you for that. You know, another area of concern is health and the adverse impact that pollution can have on good health. But it's been really hard to pinpoint the actual air quality in a neighborhood 
But now that's becoming more possible thanks to you and the partnership you have with Google. Tell us about that one. Well, we've uh, created the highest resolution maps of air pollution anywhere in the world, in West Oakland, uh, in Houston, in uh, other places around the world, London. Uh, we are combining uh, mobile sensors on Google cars with stationary sensors and um, taking millions of readings that allow us to uh, learn uh, how much pollution is where and are beginning to allow us to learn where that pollution is coming from. It's great. It is, it is great um, to make, as I said earlier, the invisible visible. Uh, and it's also very motivating uh, because when people find out that on their block, unlike just two blocks away, mm -hmm. the air pollution is much worse, they're concerned. In California, we have the fortuity that 30% of Californians are, have their health insurance through Kaiser. Kaiser hasn't given us anybody's health records, um, but they have given us access to one of their data scientists. So we've been able to look at uh, who is uh, getting sick, where, and we have found out in peer-reviewed research that's been published that if you live on a more polluted block, uh, you're uh, much more likely to have... Um, you know, a health problem, even a cardiac incident. So, you know, it reminds me of that old movie, We're Not Going to Take It Anymore. Yes, yes, and that works. Um, you don't know that you should feel that way until you know uh, that your block is more polluted because you're living next to, um, you know, a highway or another source of pollution. And by the way, uh, living next to a highway, the worst um, polluters are the Diesel trucks, some some very old because diesel engines have the advantage of mm -hmm. lasting a long time. I think this is going. This data will be a big driver to get uh, the, our elected officials to realize the benefits of supporting electrification, not only of cars but of medium and heavy duty trucks. Well, as Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local, and this is about as local as you can get, block by block. And another thing you have working for you. Um, and who's not going to take it anymore, is Mom's Clean Air Force. Tell us about them. The Mom's Clean Air Force is an idea really uh, inspired by uh, Dominique Browning, mm -hmm. Sue Mandel on our board. And um, Dominique has put together a network of a million moms uh, with many, many blogging about the environment. Um, you know, it's it's uh, very hard to stop a mother trying to protect her baby. And I can tell you that uh, when uh, these fabulous parents um, go to see the local mayor or their congressman or their senator, their senator wants to be in the picture frame yeah. uh, with the moms. And uh, we've seen many cases where the moms have persuaded elected officials to be a little bit stronger, a little bit bolder, and give us the action we need. So Moms Queen Air Force is a secret weapon of uh, EDF for sure. Let's talk a little bit more about the ecosystem and um, the work you're doing to save the beloved monarch butterfly, whose population has plummeted 90 percent in the past 20 years. What has been causing that, Fred, and what are you trying to do to turn that situation around? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of habitat uh, loss um, that has affected uh, the monarch butterflies and, um, you know, likely uh, pesticide use as well. The, um, yeah, 90% decline from the monarch butterfly, it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable. And so what we've been doing is working with uh, farmers to um, set aside more land for the monarchs and plant uh, milkweed and native prairie uh, habitat grasses. Uh, we've set a goal of doing that in a million and a half acres mm -hmm. over the next 10 years, which would increase uh, the monarch population to 225 uh million uh, monarchs, which would be a big increase. So we're working with uh, other NGOs, with businesses, with scientists, with the general public to launch um, 
high-quality uh, monarch habitat conservation projects, and uh, we're already um, piloting that f- these efforts on farms and, and ranches in Missouri and in Texas and California, and, um, you know, training uh, farmers and ranchers to become good stewards of their land for the benefit of the monarch. Well, you are focused in on training, and you're also helping to train tomorrow's sustainability experts through your EDF Climate Corps. Describe that program for us. Well, we've had a 1,000 uh, young people come through this program. They're graduate school students, many from uh, you know business schools. They get a one-week um, uh, boot camp where they learn how the program works and what are the best successes from, private, uh, from past years. Uh, we've um, place them now in 450 organizations from Yahoo, Verizon, General Motors, AT&T in the U.S. and now increasingly in China to tackle energy-related challenges and opportunities. They've identified uh, more than a billion and a half dollars in energy savings progress, uh, pro- projects, most of which have been implemented. Uh, the overwhelming majority have been implemented. This is now our 12th year and Uh, One of the neat things, Denver, about this program is that many of these folks are offered permanent jobs Mm -hmm. to stay in the companies, and um, a large fraction of them either do that or end up working in the sustainability field for their career. And so it's a highly prestigious program. I know that because we have 10 or 12 applicants for every spot. We're able to be very selective. We demand uh, these folks really have good math skills so that they can pencil out the business ca- case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, Climate Corps, EDF's Climate Corps, is just a great summer opportunity for folks in graduate school. I can see your pride coming through <laughs> when you talk about it. Uh, Fred, you know, much of the news we get on the environment lately has been pretty darn negative. Pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, the Arctic, I think the permafrost is thawing 70 years sooner than the scientists had predicted and a slew of things like that, how do you stay positive, optimistic, and hopeful in the, in, in the face of news like that? Well, uh, first of all, I, I do want to say with the Arctic permafrost, um, we're still looking for good measurements, so mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be so bleak uh, necessarily good. on that <laughs> one. Um, having said that, um, the silver lining is that um, – More and more companies are stepping up, the CEOs of 13 different uh, Fortune 500 businesses, Shell, Ford, Dow Chemical, uh, have announced, you know, a new initiative to urge the president and Congress to uh, put in place long-term federal climate policy. The airlines in the world from more than 80 countries, all the big countries, have agreed to cap emissions from the airline industry at 2020 levels, even as miles flown is expected to triple, quadruple, perhaps quintuple. Um, And they're going to do it not only by making aircraft more efficient, uh, but by paying for projects that, um, you know, take carbon out of the atmosphere, like uh, reforestation or avoided deforestation. And um, if that's successful, that could be uh, a great template for not only uh, shipping but whole other industrial sectors to follow. Climate's in the news now more than ever before, Denver. Young people are even striking in schools, which I have mixed feelings about. (laughs) I don't know about their education, but I can understand the frustration and the activism. And it's, it's motivating parents to think more and more about what they can do. In in the United States, uh, where you've mentioned some of the backward steps our government has taken, we're now seeing in the House of Representatives and the Senate, um, for the first time in a decade, dozens of hearings on climate change. Mm -hmm. And congressmen like uh, Congressman Gates from Florida, who a few years ago was introducing a bill to abolish the EPA and denying that climate change was real, a strong supporter of the president. Well, today he, he remains a strong supporter of the president, but he is saying climate change is real. It's caused by people. I don't want to argue about the thermometer anymore. I want to get a, on with solving it. And he's proposing ways to reduce greenhouse gas pollution. Now, 
the ways he's proposing aren't nearly as strong as what the world needs. But I, I think it's— But it's progress. It's progress right. when you see uh, elected officials, in this case in Florida, which is going to be on the front lines, is already on the front oh, lines sure. of yeah. climate change. It's progress when you see these ev- officials— you know, changing their positions in positive ways. Now, we've got more to do. It'll be a couple of years before we're able to pass strong climate legislation, at least a couple of years. But we're on the path. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Um, tell us a little bit about the corporate culture at EDF. Maybe one or two things that you do to try to shape it, try to influence it. And why do you believe it is such a special place to work? Well, thank you for saying it's a special place to work. Uh, I am so lucky to have the colleagues I do at the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, they're able. They're smart. We not only in Climate Corps, but uh, when we hire, we have you know a lot of folks applying for jobs. Um, we our corporate culture is grounded around five values: respect, um, results, innovation, optimism, and integrity. Mm-hmm. And w- that's really central to everything we do. We have these values posted on our wall. We give them to new employees. Um, we do everything we can to practice those values. Um, and um, we're also very entrepreneurial. And even as we've grown, um, projects like the methane sat um, are evidence and models for how we want to approach the world. Keep looking for the new big idea because these problems are so damn big. um, That's the only way we can responsibly attack them. Yeah, and it really inspires an organization when you're going after big ideas and big solutions like that. Let me close with this, Fred. You know, I always believe, whether I'm right or wrong about this, that humankind is pretty adept at handling slow-motion disasters. And climate might have fit that bill at one time, but it now appears to be accelerating at an ever-increasing rate. How much time do you think we have before the worst effects of climate change become irreversible? And what is one thing you believe that would have the greatest impact? Uh, Well, Denver, I don't think we have uh, any surplus of time. I I think we've got to get on with it. Each of us has to think about what the biggest contribution we can make to this issue is, or we're going to be damning our children and grandchildren to a pretty horrendous future. So uh, I'm not one who says we have five years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. I'm I'm one who believes we've got to get on with it right away. Um, The biggest thing I think people can do is uh, as they prepare to um, vote in our democracy to really look at uh, what a candidate's positions are on environmental issues in general, on climate change in specific, and make make that a voting issue. We're beginning to see that, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons that the politicians are beginning to offer solutions. That's got to continue. Well, Fred Krupp, the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For listeners who want to learn more about your organization and your work, or perhaps become a member, tell us about your website and what they'll find there. Uh, the website is edf, um, edf.org, and they'll find there um, videos about how we do our work, information about how we do our work, who's on the board, all of our fan- financials are uh, released publicly there. Um, They'll find ways to sign up for newsletters if they want to and stay in touch. Mm -hmm. It's one transparent website. I can attest to that. Well, thanks, Fred. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here, Denver. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. One of the most significant challenges for a low-income family with young children is finding high-quality, safe, and affordable child care. All our kin 
based in Connecticut, is one of the few organizations in the country that address child care needs and workforce development simultaneously. And here to tell us about it, I'll say that again, and here tonight to tell us about it is Jessica Sager, the founder and CEO of All Our Kin. Good evening, Jessica, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So what is the mission and what are the goals of All Our Kin? So All Our Kin is really setting out to transform the supply of high-quality, sustainable family child care. This is care that is offered primarily by women in their homes. So it's a home-based child care business that really meets the needs of working families and of our very youngest children. So we've built a model for helping these women develop truly high-quality early learning settings that are also sustainable businesses that help themselves and their families succeed. Fantastic. Was there a moment or an event that inspired you to start All Our Kin? Yeah, you know, All Our Kin really began initially as a response to welfare reform. Mm. So at the end of the 90s, welfare um, changed dramatically in this country. Until that time, women could receive cash assistance to stay home with their young children. And suddenly there was a requirement that they enter the workforce very quickly. And this placed a tremendous burden on our child care system and forced many families to choose between their family's economic survival and their children's learning and well-being. So All Our Kin was created as a recognition that the women providing care in neighborhoods across this country are a tremendous support of strength and can help fill the gap that was created to meet the needs of these children and families. Yeah, and that legislation was passed, I think, in 1996? That's right. The Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. Well, before we get into too deep about the work that you do, let's talk about a child's brain development. Tell us what occurs in the first few years of life. Yeah, so this is really a profound shift in our understanding of how children learn because, you know, 10 years ago, All we talked about in early care and education was sort of the years three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. But what we've learned is that children's brains are literally built in the first three years of life. That lays the foundation of so much of what comes after children's cognitive development, but also their social emotional development, their executive development. So that means their ability to set plans and follow through, to have grit, to be resilient, their physical health, this all starts in the very earliest years, which is why it's so critical that they're in high-quality learning environments during this time. What would the approximate cost for center-based care be for a child under four years of age? Yeah, you know, it varies a lot by state, but pretty much in any state, families can expect for child care for an infant and toddler to be their single biggest cost or one of their single biggest costs. It's equivalent to the cost of a mortgage, maybe even more. Usually, it's more expensive than tuition at a state college. Oh, my goodness. So it's a huge burden for families. Yeah. What is the cost to society of these child care breakdowns that we're so familiar with? Yeah, so we know some from, from some of the big longitudinal studies that have been done dating back to the 60s and 70s that an investment in children in the earliest years can return roughly $8 to society in terms of um, – increased productivity in the workforce, children's increased earnings over time, uh, reduced incidence of things like incarceration, bad outcomes for kids. But more profoundly, not only are there economic benefits for society, I think as a matter of moral and ethical responsibility, if we want to be a society that values each human being fully, then each child deserves to be in a safe, loving, learning place from his or her very earliest years. Hard to argue with that, that's for sure. Um, You're into family-based child care. What percentage of children get that kind of child care as opposed to center-based? So about half of all children under five spend at least some portion of their day in home-based child care. So again, we work specifically with family child care providers, mm-hmm. so folks who run home-based businesses, but there are also many other family, friend, and neighbor caregivers who have other kinds of informal arrangements with families. Taken together, these two groups comprise about half of all child care arrangements for our youngest children. You know, I always wondered about, let's say, a mother who works in a restaurant. 
uh, in the evening, cashier, waitress, cook, whatever it may be, um, are there any kind of providers in these off hours for, for those families? I'm so glad that you're raising that point. The need for non-standard hours care is huge, and it's only growing because fewer and fewer families work traditional nine-to-five jobs. Mm -hmm. There are some centers that provide off hours or non-standard hours care, but they're by far the minority. Family child care often provides a much more flexible alternative that actually meets families' needs and that also provides a place where children can feel like they're in something like a home during those off hours, which I think is a really wonderful option. Yeah, family-based child care, this has really been overlooked and undervalued by policymakers and society at large. I mean, what do we do to change that? You know, I think it is starting to change now. Uh, we began All Our Kin in, you know, at the very end of 1999. So our organization is about 20 years old. Mm -hmm. When we began, there was no attention paid really to family-based child care. And now I think we're actually starting to get phone calls from folks around the country saying, I see this as a need in my community. How do I, a mayor, a governor, a funder, how do I bring this into my community and actually support the development of sustainable family child care programs? But I think we have a lot more to do. That's part of why I'm here, right? Part of All Our Kin's mission is both to do the work and to share the stories and the data about the wonderful, wonderful programs that family child care educators can offer and why it is so very valuable to invest in them and their work. Well, let's talk a little bit about that work. What services does All Our Kin provide to family child care providers? So we have a really strength-based, holistic model for supporting family child care providers. And the first thing is to start by just recognizing that these are incredibly mission-driven women mm -hmm. who bring so many strengths to the work, right? So go in by acknowledging that and then really think about how to build them up as both educators and business people. So the first piece is to take folks who maybe aren't licensed yet and help them build sustainable businesses and become part of a professional community. What do you have to do to get licensed, let's say, in the state of Connecticut? So it looks different in every state. Mm -hmm. In Connecticut, there's a process. It involves a lot of paperwork, a lot of background checks, some minimal training in mm -hmm. health and safety. Um, and more important than any of that, what we infuse into the process is really this deep respect for the work and the undertaking that each of these caregivers is engaged in. So by the end of the time working with us, not only are they licensed, they truly view themselves as professionals, um, worthy of respect and committed to lifelong learning. That is so important. Work. That's so great because I think a lot of people tend to look at them as babysitters. That's exactly right. And I think that really brings me to the next piece of what we do, which is lots and lots of professional learning, mm -hmm. both through coaching delivered on site in family child care programs and through our own workshops and trainings and classes. And all of those are really about taking the very latest research on brain development and bringing it into family child care programs. They're professionals, that's for sure. They're absolutely professionals. So the third piece is supporting their professionalism through our business training and support, through training family child care educators as entrepreneurs, helping them develop contracts, policies, manage cash flow. Uh, they need to be wonderful educators, mm -hmm. but they also need to know how to run a business effectively. How many family child care providers are currently in your network? We work with about 700 family child care educators across several cities in Connecticut and now in the Bronx here in New York as well, which we're very excited about. And through those educators, we're reaching about 4,000 children. Mm -hmm. Our daughter went to a family child care provider, and it was an absolutely wonderful woman. But I also observed that this can be pretty lonely and stressful work. Um, do you have a way of bringing this whole community together so they can share stories and encourage one another? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things we have to offer is that through our professional learning and other opportunities, we're creating a space where family child care educators connect with 
each other Mm -hmm. because it's really hard when you're with kids all day by yourself, 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, and folks are often amazed to learn that after a 10 to 12 hour day, these educators will come out again and again to trainings and workshops. Part of that is because of their deep commitment to learning and children's well-being. But part of it is that it becomes a social space to build a really strong set of connections to each other and really begin to build a professional cohort across each of our communities um, where they can learn from, inspire, and support each other. Yeah, that camaraderie is just invaluable. And also, I think what happens often when you're in those circumstances is that maybe things are not going right and you think it's only you. And then you find out that it's not only you, and that sense of shared challenges and how to navigate that can really make a big, big difference. Oh, yeah. Having a friend that you can pick up the phone and call when you have a hard day, that's huge. Another thing I'll say, many of our best workshop trainers are family child care educators in our network who can actually say, not only is this the theory, let me tell you what it's like to live it and what's hard as well as what's great about that. Let's get real. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There have been studies on family child care programs that are affiliated with all our kin. What have been some of the key findings from that research? Yeah, so there are sort of three big findings. The first is our impact on the supply of child care. So family child cares are closing across the country because this work is so hard and so underpaid. They're closing even though there's a desperate need for their services. So we've shown that in Connecticut, in all our kids' first 10 years, the state lost over 30% of its family child care programs, while where all our kin was located in New Haven because of our work, Mm -hmm. that number went up by over 70%. So that's number one. Number two is our impact on quality. We have a study that's gotten a lot of attention using research-based observational tools uh, that correlate with better outcomes for children. We sent observers into the field who didn't know if they were observing all our kin or non-all our kin programs. Our family child care educators scored on average over 50, 50% higher on these tools. Their scores were remarkably high. Fantastic. Yep. And then there's one final piece of this, which is our impact on economics. So the University of Connecticut Center for Economic Analysis has shown that not only do we significantly impact caregivers' earnings and well-being, that because of caregivers' increased earnings and parents' ability to enter in the workforce, every dollar we're investing in our newest educators is returning 15 to $20 to society. Those are nice metrics, that's for sure. And this work is still really undervalued. I think I read someplace that the average uh, medium income was $23,240. And when I think about the work that's involved and the responsibility involved, that really isn't uh, commensurate for, for what these women are doing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, at least for the educators in our network, um, many of them are serving children from low-income working families. So the amount they're able to earn is directly connected to the amount of child care subsidy dollars that are available, which is why government mm-hmm. funding becomes an essential piece of this. Because as we discussed at the beginning, the cost of care is so high yeah. that families really need help to be able to pay educators what they deserve. Well, as we mentioned also at the beginning, you are based in Connecticut and gone from town to town. But now you're springing, uh, you've spread your wings a little bit and you are now in New York City and are partnering with the Department of education. Tell us about that. Yeah, we are so excited about this. So we have a direct service all our kin site in the Bronx where we're working with family child care educators. But we also have this really neat partnership with the Department of Education to partner with other agencies, other NGOs and social service agencies across the city that are also engaging with family child care educators. And these agencies have many, many strengths that they bring to the work. On top of that, we are able to infuse our coaching model, Mm -hmm. our professional learning principles, as well as our business curriculum to really, you know, sort of turbo boost the services that they're able to offer to family child care educators. Talk a little bit about your funding. Where does it come from? Is it picking up? Uh, What role does the government play? And so on. 
So our work is primarily funded through philanthropy. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting to note is it actually is kind of highly leveraged by government dollars because we are providing professional development and quality enhancement to child care programs. It is federal and state child care subsidy dollars that are then paying for the actual cost of care. In addition, we are beginning to see more government investment in our work. For example, the partnership with the Department of Education here in New York City, some more partnerships with the state of Connecticut, and other folks in other parts of the country reaching out to us as well. Yeah, and speak a little bit about your philanthropy. Who are some of your uh, supporters? So I was delighted to see that you recently interviewed the managing director of the Omidyar Network. Yes. Um, It was a great interview. Yeah. Yeah. So we right now are very lucky to have the support of three major national foundations, the Omidyar Network, the Pritzker Children's Initiative, Mm -hmm. and the Buffett Early Childhood Fund, who have come together to say, we think all our kin's model is really exciting, and we really want to invest in bringing it to other parts of the country. We also have many wonderful funders here in New York City. I would put the Robin Hood Foundation at the very top of that list, but many, many philanthropic supporters who have come together to bring all our kin to New York, as well as our funders in Connecticut. Well, you certainly have some brand names, no question about that. In addition to funding, which I know is always a challenge, what do you consider to be your biggest challenge at the moment? Yeah, I think you really put your finger on it, which is that family child care continues to be devalued. Um, I think we we need to keep working to change perceptions of family child care and kind of stereotypical images of babysitters that people have in their heads. That is not what family child care looks like. I could take you to so many wonderful programs that would really begin to change that picture in people's minds, but we're on the radio, so I can't do that now. <laughs> we do have some videos on our website that I would encourage folks to take a look at. I think the other thing is that we do need a government funding mechanism to begin to create a child care system, which we just don't have right now. Share with us a story of one of the members of your network and what their relationship with all our kin has meant to them and to their community. I will share one of my favorite stories. We have a family child care educator named Maria. When we met Maria, she was a um, a neighbor caregiver caring informally for just a couple of children in her neighborhood. She lived in a very small Section 8 apartment. Her husband had a job cleaning hospitals at night. They had this tiny, tiny place. She brought so much love and devotion and skill to caring for children, but she hadn't been able to expand that to reach more kids Mm -hmm. or really turn it into a career. We worked with her to develop her business, to give her resources, books and furniture and materials, but also, again, infuse the latest in brain development into her work. We saw her business begin to grow. Pretty soon, she and her husband were working together. They had a young daughter who became part of the business as well. We saw them move to a bigger apartment, to a bigger apartment, finally to a two-family home in a mixed-income neighborhood where they are serving a group of mixed-income children, so they're still deeply committed to serving the poorest families, and there's a waiting list of, you know, teachers, pediatricians, and social workers who are trying to get their kids into this incredibly beautiful, thoughtful, and inclusive program serving children zero to five. Great story, a real family affair. Let me close with this, Jessica, and getting back to the government for a moment. You know, there's some proposals around about universal child care. In the context of what might be realistic, what are you looking at that could be implemented in the not-too-distant future? Yeah, I would like to see um, certainly every presidential candidate at a minimum putting forward a plan for a child care system. And I think it needs to have three key components. So the first is it needs to be for children zero to five, not just preschoolers, not just three and four. So zero to five. Number two, a mixed delivery system, meaning child care centers and family child care programs. And number three, universal that means recognizing that it's hard for middle-class families to pay for child care as well and that there is some subsidy and support for families at many, many levels. And by the way, we actually have a model for doing a lot of this. I figured you might. It's the U.S. military. <laughs> These folks have really been thoughtful 
about how to build a childcare system for military families. They've been able to do it efficiently and effectively, and I'd like to see something like that model across the country. Yeah, the military's done some amazing things and uh, that, that we don't think of, but they have really developed some wonderful systems. Well, Jessica Sager, the Chief Executive Officer of All Our Kin, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If people are interested in learning more about your work or wanting to support your organization, tell us a little bit more about your website. Yeah, so our website is www.allourkin.org. So please go check it out. Look for those videos I mentioned, some of those evaluation reports, information about our programs. In addition, we're quite active on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, Jessica Sager AOK, or you can follow us at All Our Kin. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, Jessica. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, and his recently released monograph, Turning the Flywheel. So you'll want to be here for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.